Today's message is filled with joy, but it's also very heavy. And so uh, let's consider Jesus together, and then you'll start to see why that is. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus, and we're going to be continuing on our series, chapter 11, Exodus chapter 11. And um, I'll just start as you're turning there, um, just teeing the sermon up this way. Have you ever been in a relationship uh, where uh, it was a little unbalanced, meaning um, you think back on it and uh, you could be either party in the relationship, but uh, one of you is super committed and uh, sacrifice, sacrifices in a significant way, and the other is just not that into it. For instance, uh, you could be dating someone and uh, your, boy, your boyfriend comes to you and says, well, my dream job came up, it was in New York City, but I've stayed in Seattle to be with you. And uh, the girlfriend says, what? <laughs> Why did you do that? I'm not that into you. And um, it's a bit unbalanced. It could be, you know what? My parents said I shouldn't be with you, but I so want to be with you, so I've cut off communication with my parents. You see where I'm going with this? Uh, The idea being uh, someone in the relationship is so all in and someone is not. And in a weird way, that's what we're going to be talking about today. I'll come back to this at the very end. How is it that this passage, this story, this reality is an example of that? So we'll get there. Disclaimer, after this sermon, you may need theological counseling. But don't worry. That's actually part of my job description and part of Ryan's job description. It's, it's what we like to, uh, to call our counseling. You know, there's lots of counseling that you can get. What Ryan and I can help with is theological counseling, which is to say there could be some things that I bring up today that don't make total sense to you. That's okay. They don't make total sense to me. So the song that we led with, I lean not on my own understanding. Even as I present this message to you, there's parts of this that I'm leaning not on my own understanding, but what God has revealed to be true. So if you need theological counseling after today's sermon, that's okay. And that's part of what being in a community is about. So please reach out and say, that really stirred me up, or I'd never thought about God in that way. I could use some counsel. We'd love to get together. I would love if, if my inbox just flooded with people saying, I need to set up a theological counseling session. That is to the glory of God. I'm really setting this up, aren't I? So this is a heavy, heavy sermon. My, my son Owen, two years old, he always tries to pick up these very heavy things. And he always goes, heavy, heavy! We're going to try to pick this up today. But it's going to be heavy. It's going to be heavy. Thousands upon thousands of Egyptians are going to be killed by the hand of God. So I want to get us into this moment because, man, we're coming in with so much. We're distracted. We're trying to get ready. We're trying to go. Our mind is trying to heart is catching up. We're just not there. So 
let me just place us in the story. God is wanting to deliver his people and free them from slavery and a bondage and oppression from a Pharaoh um, who is cruel and murderous. And remember, Moses was saved when there was a decree to kill all uh, Hebrew Israelite newborns. Okay, so you've got to place yourself in that story. And God has done this by then raising up this Moses to be the leader of his people. And Moses has come to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh's heart hardens again and again. And he's stubborn and he will not give in to God. And God, as we said last week, humiliates Pharaoh and the Egyptians' God nine times over. And still, Pharaoh refuses. Nine plagues befall the land of Egypt. We talked about that last week. The Nile River is turned to blood. There's frogs. There's gnats and lice. There's flies. Cattle are dying. People's skin is boiling with skin disease. There's a hailstorm that can kill cattle. There's locusts that ravage the food supply. And then, where we ended last week, three full days of complete darkness and chaos. And it's in that air that we come to the final plague. And we'll read about that today. It's the killing of the firstborn of all Egyptians. So, so to fully understand this, got so much going on, I just want to play a two-minute instrumental song And I want you to try as best you can to put yourself in this air of this night. Because this next plague is coming at midnight, which which is not necessarily 12 o'clock, but it's the dead of the night. So try to put yourself in this place. Kurt, why don't you go ahead and just play this song. Just close your eyes, pray, ask God to bring you into this moment by his spirit. of the air 
But it's not the first time or the last time that that weight was in the air. And so actually, I want to start by reading about the Last Supper. The Last Supper was a Passover meal. And the Passover meal was a meal that originated in chapter 12 of Exodus. So the Last Supper is when Jesus draws his disciples together before his death. And he says, let's celebrate this meal together. So let me read it for you. Matthew 26, verse 17 says this. Now, on the first day of the unleavened bread, that's a festival. It's a part of the Passover week. The disciples came to Jesus saying, where will, we, where will you have us prepare to eat the Passover? Jesus said to them, go into the city, that's Jerusalem, to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house and my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed, and they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, Jesus reclined at the table with the twelve disciples. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And and they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas who would betray him, answered, It is I, Rabbi. Or sorry, is it I, Rabbi? Jesus said to him, You have said so. Let me just pause there. Maybe you've heard this story time and again. This happens before Jesus shares a meal with Judas, knowing that Judas would betray him. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you. In my Father's kingdom. We do this every week. This is the scene. It's at a Passover meal where Jesus is saying, It's my body, it's my blood that is the new covenant. We'll celebrate this again today. This is why. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Before, but, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And here we have, if you continue to read, the famous scene of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus cries out to the Father, If there's any other way, please take this cup from me. The cup symbolizing suffering and death. But Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. 
Why do I read this first? Jesus is taking what we're about to read and study today, and he is applying it to himself. He is saying, it's all actually about me. And that's why we gather, that's why we remember these words of Jesus, that's why we eat the bread and the wine. It's our Passover meal. So let's see where it came from, and then we can talk more about it. So turn back with me to Exodus chapter 11 as we begin to look at the final plague as it's threatened by the Lord. As every plague has come, God has given Pharaoh a chance to respond, repent, and let the people go, and Pharaoh's hard heart has refused. Let's see, after three days of darkness, with that thickness in the air, with the smell of death almost burning the nostrils of all of Egypt, let's see what happens. Chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord, that is Yahweh, said to Moses, Yet one more plague I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. God says, this last plague will break Pharaoh, and he will let you go. And the people will be broken, and they will actually give you gifts. And we'll see this is important for the sustenance of the people of God and the building of the temple in the wilderness. God says, this will break them so that they will actually bless you as you leave with silver and gold. Verse 3, and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the sight of in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, that's his officers, his highest officials, and in the sight of the people. So everyone sees what's going on. Everyone knows who has the power, that it's God and Moses, the prophet of God, and everyone except Pharaoh is completely aware that we need to stop fighting against this God. So Moses said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill. What God is saying is, no one who does not worship me will be safe. Whether they're a high-ranking official or they're a low servant girl. Men, women, children, everyone who opposes Yahweh the Lord will be struck. And all the firstborn of the cattle, in fact, even your livestock will experience this plague. Livestock, very important, valuable, a part of the family almost in antiquity. Verse 6, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been. Not ever will there be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt, those who worship Pharaoh, and the gods of Egypt, and those 
who worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And these your servants shall come down to me and bow to me, saying, Get out, you and all your people who follow, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Let me pause there. So Moses knows what's going to happen. Pharaoh is going to keep hardened. And so Moses leaves in hot anger. Why? Because he knows that the word of the Lord is always true. And if the Lord has spoken, what he has spoken will come to pass. And so he's angry at Pharaoh because he knows that Pharaoh's rejection of the Lord will lead to death for thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these things, all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. So God has warned. And we must remember, uh, if you haven't been tracking with us, the kind of cruelty, the kind of oppression that all of Egypt is responsible for. Yes, Pharaoh is the figurehead, the representative of the whole community, and he's the one that's rejecting God, but everyone is complicit in the slavery and oppression and the killing of the Israelite firstborns that we saw at the beginning of the story. Their silence is their complicity. They go along with his orders. That's what seems to be happening. So they're not innocent. In fact, none of us are innocent We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve death, the Bible says. And we all will die. The first death. Turn to the end of the Bible, and Jesus says, I'll save you from the second death. So we can read this, and we can be appalled at the the idea that this is what the Lord is going to do. And we'll see that he does it. There is much blood shed. But we have to remember that this is exactly what God said would happen when we lived outside of his covenant, outside of his way, when we went our own way, rebelled, thought that we knew better. This is always the end, death and bloodshed. So God has predicted it. He's given Pharaoh a chance. His heart is hardened. He does not obey and bow before the Lord. So then we would expect, as we've been going through the flow of the narrative, now the thing happens, right? Just the pattern that we've seen over the first nine plagues. But something really interesting happens here. There's an insertion of some strange (laughs) instruction. So let me read that to you real quickly, and then I'll explain why this is important. Chapter 12, verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. So you can team up with a couple of households. 
According to what each of you can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Okay. This is strange. What is this? This is law. This is, this is how you perform the Passover uh, meal at the festival of the Passover. Why is Moses sticking this in right here? Like it's breaking the flow of the narrative. Why is that? Our antenna should go up. We should say, wait, there's something extra important about what's about to happen. That Moses, remember, he's writing this. He's recalling all the things that happened. Once they're in the wilderness and free and at Mount Sinai, and Moses is now telling the people, this is how we're going to organize our new community. And he's saying, I want you to organize, God says, I want you to organize around this event. Meaning, I want you to change your calendar so that this is the first thing you celebrate every single year. You think that's important? You see, in the past, in the agri- ag- uh, agri- agrarian society, it would be the fall um, reaping that would be the beginning of the year, the celebration of the harvest. So God is reorienting an entire people group to change their calendar to start at the Passover. Interesting. Moses goes on, verse 7. So after you've got the lamb and you've killed it, then you shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and in the lintel of the house. So on the sides of the door and the top of the door. You should just smear it with the blood in which you eat the Passover lamb. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread, and we'll read more about that later, and with bitter herbs. They shall eat. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head, its leg, and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So all of these things about how to prepare the meal including what to wear to the meal, have to do with being able to leave quickly. Okay, and we'll see why that's important. Because God is going to strike the Egyptians and they're going to literally push them out of the land and they've got to be ready to go. So it would be a lot more work. It would take a lot more time to boil rather than to roast. Then you have all these pans that you'd have to clean up before you could take them. And as we'll see, the bread is to be without yeast because there was no time in the Exodus after God strikes the Egyptians with the plague, no time for the dough to rise. That's why we ce- they celebrate in the Passover to this day for a whole week eating bread that's unleavened. Okay, verse 12. So now God says to Moses and Aaron, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Go back and listen to last week. God is stepping up against all the gods of Egypt and saying, they are no gods. I am who I am. 
I am the God, the only God. Verse 13, And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Okay? God tells this to Moses and Aaron. Now, jump ahead with me to verse 21. Now, Moses and Aaron take this, and we don't have time to go through the other stuff about unleavened bread. We'll maybe come back to that later. But then Moses and Aaron go, and they tell this to the elders, the leaders of the Hebrew community, who are then going to disseminate this information so that people can get ready for this 10th plague. So this is all, in real time, happening really fast. Even though Moses is talking about, this is how you'll do it in the future, God's told them this is how you do it in the future, you'll prepare, and there'll be four days to get the lamb, and, and it'll be on the 14th day. This is all happening very fast. So Moses goes and calls the elders, verse 21 of Israel, and says to them, quote, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the doorposts of your house with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning. Don't leave your house. This is serious. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintels and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. This is intense. We, we need to wake up to the reality of who God is. He is not safe. But as we'll see, he is loving. There's no happy clappy when you read the word of God. There's no Pollyanna Christianity. Yahweh says, I'm coming, and if you do not follow my command to mark your house with the blood of a lamb, the destroyer will enter your house too. Now think, think about what the people would have thought. Well, could you please explain to me how this works and why this is and why blood and, and why does it have to be an unblemished lamp? They don't have time for that. They simply have to hear from Yahweh who has proven over the last nine plagues that he is the God of gods, the King of kings, and they have to obey and trust. That is faith. They don't have even the information that we have today. And they did it. And God spares them. Drop down to verse 29. At midnight, that is at the darkest point of night, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Picture the wailing, 
This isn't wailing of those who died. What seems to have happened, that's why it says, at midnight, that there was a moment that somehow the destroyer, whoever that is, perhaps it's an angel of death. We don't know. It just says the destroyer. But it's clear that God's hand is behind it all. That almost in their sleep, perhaps that's the mercy of God, all the firstborns ceased and breath left them. And as people awoke to check on their kids, because maybe they'd heard about this plague that was promised, one starts to find their dead child, and they wail. So it wakes up the neighbor who, who wakes up and checks on their child. And the wail, and the wail becomes so great and so grand that it can be heard across the land. Nothing like this has ever happened and will happen again in the land of Egypt, the word says. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve Yahweh, as you have said. Take your flocks, take your herds, As you have said, as you have asked, as you've been pleading with me to do, take it and be gone. And look at this very interesting line. It says, and bless me also. What's happened? Pharaoh has not volunteered his need to bow before God, but God has broke him. To the point where you see the tables have turned. Now he understands where blessing comes from, and he asks for a blessing as they leave. So ironic. Verse 33, So the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. If they stay, I mean, he he just killed the firstborn. He's coming for us all. Get out. Go. Take. And so they left. They gathered everything up, and everything that the Lord had promised happened. And Pharaoh actually sends them out, and the people send them out and actually give them things. Go, take my things and go. And it comes when God actualizes his promise and he kills for the freedom of his people. This is heavy. God is not safe, God loves you so much that he's willing to kill for you. Do you understand that? Now I want to look closely at this, this putting the blood on the doorposts. Something, some very important notes that we need to look at here. So why, why is this? In the previous plagues, what have we seen? If you were here last week, After the third plague, God begins to only bring plagues on the Egyptians, but not his people. And it says nothing about needing to mark it or sign. So it's not that God doesn't know who his people are. He knows our hearts. He knows if we're with him or not. So why does God force them to kill an unblemished, perfect, spotless, young lamb and put the blood of it over their doorposts? If God knows everything, if he's omniscient, why does he need that? He didn't need it before. Why does he need it now? I'll say three things, and I think it applies to us as well. God knows our heart. 
He knows if we're for him. So why does he ask us every time we gather together? First, why does he ask us to gather together? Why does he ask us to sing praise if he knows our heart? Why does he ask us to take the, the cup, which represents the blood, and the bread, which represents his body, and, and, and publicly practice the taking in of that week in and week out? If he already knows our hearts, what's the big deal? Why are we here? Why are we doing it? It's a great question. I think there's three things that are similar then and are similar now. The first is this. Blood has to be shed. Blood had to be shed for the Hebrews just as it was shed for the Egyptians. The difference is, God says, if you trust me, I will take the blood of a substitute lamb in the place of your firstborn. That's what God says. But blood has to be shed. So by putting blood on their doors, they are telling to themselves and to all that would witness, listen, there's not two kinds of people here. Those that need bloodshed and those that don't need bloodshed. Everybody needs bloodshed. Again, why is that? I don't know. That's beyond my pay grade. This is what God has said from the beginning of time until now. Blood must be shed for the sins of the people. So the first thing is blood has to be shed, which is to say blood represents life. Life has to be given. There is no way to put things right there is no way to create real freedom from bondage. There is no way to restore life without taking life. That's the way it is. And God tells us that. And we show that through the putting of blood on our doorposts. It's either the substitute or it's the blood of our own family. The second reason. Why do they have to actually do the act? Because obedience matters. Obedience matters. God says, trust me in your heart, yes, but trust me with your hands also. I'll sh show me what you do, and I'll show you what you believe in. If you don't believe that it matters, then you won't do it. If you trust me, and I say to do it, then you'll do it, even if you don't fully understand why this blood over the doorpost saves you. God's told you it does. Your obedience matters. And the third is this. It will be a witness to your neighbors. Okay? To your neighbors. Others would have seen the blood on your doorpost. And when no one from your household, and they heard no wailing from your household, and they're experiencing death, they would know why. The substitute. That you trusted Yahweh. The same is true why we come and gather and take communion and sacrifice our time to worship the Lord and take a Sabbath. We are publicly witnessing our obedience to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Because we're saying out loud, it's Yahweh who leads to life. 
It's Jesus who saves life. So it matters that we take what we know in our heart and we do something physically, tangibly to represent it in the world. I think that's what's going on here with the doorposts. It's not like God really didn't know without it. He's not making a split decision as the destroyer flies over the house. There's something much deeper that's going on. It's an outward sign of an inward faith. And it saves God's people. The blood covers God's people. The blood of a sacrifice covers God's people. When a substitute death stands in the place of your death, you are covered. Where no substitute stands in your place, you are uncovered. So let me now come back to the Lord's Supper when Jesus calls his disciples together and he says to them, see this cup? This cup represents my blood which I'm going to pour out for you for the covering of your sin. See this bread? This represents my physical body which will be broken for you to cover you when the angel of death comes and judges all people. Jesus says, I am the Lamb. So then we look back and we say, so why did God tell all of this interesting ceremonial festival law to Moses and Aaron before this ever happened. Because God's saying, this is the central moment of God's people's history. And so you need to tell people they need to find an unblemished lamb because it's the only thing that will cover their sin. So why is it going to be unblemished? None of this would have made sense until Jesus came. The sinless, perfect, unblemished Son of God. God's firstborn. Who God gives as a substitute for your firstborn. For my firstborn. For your life. For my life. So actually what's happening is God is orienting the people to understand that what's about to happen will shape all of history. So, let's, so he says, so let's pause, and let me tell you everything that's going to happen next. Okay? You tracking with me? Okay, now I'm going to go somewhere where you might need some theological counseling. That's okay. Here we go. Ready? So the question is, is what Jesus does at the Last Supper, where is he reinterpreting or redefining the Passover? 
Is he saying like that has always been the central, the Passover is the central truth and history piece of the people of God and now I'm going to reinterpret it or re-explain it about, about myself? Is that what's going on? Jesus would say no. He would say, I didn't come to redefine the scriptures. I came to what? Fulfill the scripture. Okay? So what does fulfill mean? He's saying, listen, for 1,300 years, this has been a little bit foggy. Why it had to be an unblemished lamb? Why there had to be blood? Why there had to be a lamb? And I am going to now take the shape of the Passover and the Passover festival and the Passover meal and the actual history of God sending the destroyer to kill Egyptians. I'm going to take the shape of that and now I'm going to fill it up. Meaning once, once I put that on myself, it's all going to make sense of all that history that's wrapped up in that Passover event and that Passover ceremony. I'm going to fill it up. And actually what I'm going to reveal is that it was always all about me. You see, Jesus isn't just one type of lamb that we could have. Jesus is the lamb. And the lambs that were slain on that first Passover were types of Jesus, not the other way around. And this is where, like, if you're a Christopher Nolan fan, we got to go crazy. we got to, like, mix up Inception <laughs> with Tenant. And then we got to sprinkle, what's another one? we got to sprinkle in a little interstellar right here, okay? So, so I might lose you. That's okay. Just remember, Jesus is the lamb. Here's what, what God is actually saying, and Jesus is saying when he says, I am the lamb, I fulfill the Passover. He's actually saying that he is the central point of all history. Okay? Stick with me here. But we have to, to understand that statement, we have to distinguish cosmic history versus eternal history. Because you see, God is outside of cosmic history. He initiated space-time reality. And cosmic history is linear, so it seems like the Passover came first. And then Jesus is now reinterpreting it. But God says, not from my point of view. From my point of view, from eternal history... History is not linear, history is three-dimensional. And the central moment of history is God the Son entering in to space-time reality. And so if you put these two on a graph, you'd have the three-dimensional eternal history, how God sees it, and you'd see cosmic history as an arrow piercing through, and the place they intersect is not the Passover of the Exodus, it's the Passover of Jesus Christ. The incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the center of history. <sighs> okay. Let me give you a couple illustrations to help you try to understand this. The Passover was not the event like a rock dropping into a pond that then created ripple effects, and one of the ripples is Jesus. Wrong way of looking at it. The right way of looking at it is the rock that God dropped out of the heavens that hit cosmic history was the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When God dropped himself into the pond, around what time? Around zero 
A.D. It's actually probably 6 B.C. Some Gregorians got it wrong (laughs) when they were doing the math. They forgot about leap years. But basically, that is the center moment where the rock drops in the pond of eternal history. And so actually what the Passover is, is a ripple. I call it a pre-ripple because it happened before in linear time. But it's a pre-ripple in eternal history time of the Passover substitutionary death, atoning blood of Jesus Christ for you and for me. Maybe. Call me for some counseling if you need counseling. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Even though it happened before, it's a ripple of the real true thing, which is God entering the world in the person of Jesus, dying as your sacrificial lamb and my sacrificial lamb. And covering us from our sin so that we might have life even after death. I'll give you one more illustration to try to capture this. Think of history, all of history, as a, as a, as a, a big, called the fabric of time. Like a big blanket, okay? And it's stretched out. And all of a sudden, God drops a bowling ball into the blanket. What's going to happen? Everything's going to curve down into that deep well. That's the heavy, heavy. The heavy, heavy is Jesus. The incarnation, the life, the death of God the Son as your substitutionary lamb. And everything bends towards that hole. Like you can try to run away up the blanket, but you are going to get pulled back into it. It Sucks everything into it because it is the truest reality that this is who God is. That this God is willing to kill to be with you. He's even willing to kill His own Son. That's the weight. That's the bowling ball. And everything curves into it. And so you can go watch the new movie. I took Grayson to see it. Raya and the Last Dragon. And guess what that's about? Guess why? Millions upon millions of people will leave and say what my son Grayson said. Dad, that's the greatest movie I've ever seen. He gave it a thousand stars. I don't even know how you get a thousand stars. Why did he love it? It's God's story. And Disney's just making millions on it. And every great story is being sucked into that story. Which is why we want people to know about the true thing. The name above all names. We want them to know the name of the lamb that they can call on who will be slaughtered in their place so that death will not visit their door a second time. That's the person of Jesus. John calls him the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then if you turn the pages of the Bible to Revelation, let's, I'll just turn there, and you begin to read Revelation, which is the end of all things. God gives a vision to John, his prophet, and says, John, tell them this is what the end of time looks like. Revelation 5.11 says this, Then, behold, I look. John is seeing a revelation of the future, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard a creature in heaven and on earth and, and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying to him who sits on the throne to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You see, everywhere in Scripture you begin to see Jesus is the Lamb. And so the pre-ripple of the exodus of the Passover is preparing people's minds to realize that blood must be shed. Death is the only thing that um, satisfies the wrath of God towards sin. But God loved you so much that He killed for you. He killed his son for you. What are you going to do when you come to realize that? When that bowling ball hits you on the chest and you realize God killed for you, what are you going to do? So I only have one big takeaway. If you're in a relationship with God or not yet in a relationship with God and you realize that he's willing to kill for you and he has killed for you and he's killed his own son for you and your response is I'm just not that into you, something needs to change. You're in an unbalanced relationship, friends. If you're not willing to give your whole life to a God who not only created you, but killed his own son for you, you've got, you've got some wrestling to do. You've got some reorienting to do. You've got some soul searching to do. God is not safe. Blood has to be shed. A life for a life. And if you're willing to take Jesus as your substitute, you better be willing to give Jesus your all in all.